Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On today's episode, I welcome back in Nir Eyal, who joined the podcast in 2019, and he is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable received critical acclaim, winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon and one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. The Globe and Mail called Indistractable the best business book of 2019. And that's really what I want to bring Nir back on to talk about, distractions and how we could better prioritize the things in our life to eliminate distractions and become more productive and ultimately more fulfilled and happy going forward. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation I have with Nir. And without further ado, please welcome in Nir Eyal. Nir, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you back. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been four years since uh, since you were on last. It was, I, I was looking back, I was like, gosh, that was episode 70, and here we are like in the late 300s. So uh, it's been a long time. I know lots change in your life and in the world as well. Um, so it's fun yeah, to get amazing. Congratulations on all these episodes. Thanks. Yeah. And well, and that's actually, you know, one of the reasons I want to have you back on is over the last few years, especially trying to prioritize things, do more, you know, get things done. It's like the distractions keep popping up, the you know, procrastination. And obviously a lot of folks that I talk with the same, it seems like the same thing over and over again. It's I'm distracted. I can't prioritize life. I, all these things come up. So I was like, all right, who better to come back on? And talk about this than you. Um, so I thought we'd start if it's okay. And maybe this is hopefully a fun spot to start is, you might get asked this too. So you wrote the, your book, Indistractable, in 2019. The world's changed a lot in the last four years, obviously, going through a whole pandemic. And, and the way just work life, it seems like the lines have been more blurred over the last few mm. years, especially with a lot of remote work. If you were writing the book today, what would you add to it? Or what concepts would you kind of think differently about knowing where the world is? You know, surprisingly, I think the book has held up pretty well. <laughs> I remember telling my wife when we were going through COVID that I was so thankful that I had written the book before the pandemic because I don't know how I would have made it through. Mm. I mean, there were some times when it was so difficult to focus based on what was happening in the world and all the craziness that was going on between the pandemic and the elections and the wildfires and all the other crap that was happening at that time. Uh, if I hadn't done this research into how do we you know, maintain our wits. How do we make sure that we do what we say we're going to do and uh, sustain our attention on the things that we think are important according to our values as opposed to letting the media and outside events take control of our minds? Uh, I don't know how I would have gotten through it. So not much has changed. I mean, I, I talk about in the book, uh, working from home is has a prominent place. So that, that became a very important aspect. I think what's changed is not uh, distraction hasn't come and gone. Distraction is still very much with us. What's changed is maybe the form factor of distraction. So when people were talking about, oh, it's you know my boss that distracts me, uh, or my coworkers that distract me in an office setting, and then we went from remote working from home. Now it's my kids and my pets and my spouse that's distracting me, yeah. uh, and now people are going back to the office. So we're back to the old distractions. So I think maybe they've just changed and fluctuated, but. You know, I think the big revelation of the book is that it's not about the external triggers. They play a role, right? All these things in our outside environment definitely play a role, but that's a very minor role that to really become indistractable, you have to understand your internal triggers. And those internal triggers go with you everywhere you go because they're inside your own head. And it doesn't matter what changes uh, in the outside environment. Fundamentally, 90% of our distractions begin from within. And that is a really important concept because people tend to blame stuff outside them, right? It's the news, it's it's social media, it's uh, my kids, it's my pets, it's all this stuff outside of me. And really, it turns out 90% of your distractions begin from within. What are you finding through your research? Because I can only speak on myself and obviously talk to people, but like I find the, the biggest thing is avoiding wanting to do something that's probably important work for me. But whether mm -hmm. it's fear or nerves or whatever, like I find that's one of the reasons I get distracted. It's like, oh, let me check the phone quickly or let me search a little bit extra on yeah. this. Do you find that's the major reason or is there something else that you'd call out? Yeah, I mean, the worst form of distraction is a job well done that you didn't have to do. 
right? Interesting. That yeah. is the worst form of distraction because you did it perfectly, but guess what? You didn't have to freaking do it. Okay. And so what I try and advise people to understand is the difference between traction and distraction. Traction is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do. Okay, things that move you closer to your values, help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction, distraction. Many people don't realize those are opposites. The opposite of traction is distraction. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both words come from the same Latin root to pull. Uh, it, it comes from the Latin root trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action that we ourselves take. So once you understand the difference between traction, actions that pull you towards what you said you were going to do and distraction, any action that pulls you away from what you said you were going to do. Now you can begin to become indistractable because, you know, under, what most people think of as distraction, oh, my phone, my email, my this, my that, they blame these things, but none of those things are inherently bad if it's what you said you were going to do. The really pernicious form of distraction is the kind that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. Mm -hmm. So just because something is a work-related task, like you were saying earlier, oh, let me just uh, check that quick email or I gotta do this one thing for work or that or the other, just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That is the most dangerous form of distraction because you don't even realize you're distracted, mm -hmm. right? So what used to happen to me for years and years, I mean, look, I wrote this book. For me, more than anyone, I kept getting distracted. It took me five years to write this book. Why? Because I kept getting distracted, yeah. <laughs> right? So I wrote this book for me more than anyone. It wasn't until I learned these techniques for myself that I became indistractable. And today I live the best life I could have ever imagined for myself, not because I'm incredibly lucky or I work harder than most people. No, I just do what I say I'm going to do, right? If I say I'm going to exercise, I exercise. If I say I'm going to eat right, I eat right. If I say I'm going to work on that big project, I work on that big project. If I say I'm going to be fully present with my family, that's what I'm doing. That's all we have to do. Turns out to really live our best life, that's all we have to do is just follow through with what we say we're going to do and stop getting distracted. So what I would do for years would be sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, I'm not going to get distracted. I'm, nothing's gonna in my, going to get in my way. I really have to work on that big project, right? I really got to do this presentation or I got to write that chapter or whatever it is I got to do. I got to make those sales calls, whatever it is. And I would say, okay, here I go. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to get started. But first, let me check some email, yeah. right? Yeah. Let me just scroll that Slack channel real quick. Let me just do some easy to-do list tasks. Let me just check some things off just to get some momentum going, right? right. I, I got to do that stuff anyway. These right. are all work-related tasks. I'm being productive, aren't I? Right. And what I didn't realize is that distraction was tricking me into not even realizing that that is not what I said I was going to do. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. Again, the worst distraction is the job well done that you didn't have to do. And so it's not until we understand what is traction and what is distraction for every minute of our day. Here's something I want people to remember, write it down, tattoo it on your arm. You cannot say you got distracted unless you got you know what you got distracted from. I'll say it again. You cannot say you got distracted unless you know what you got distracted from. So if you didn't plan out what you were going to do, what the hell are you complaining about? You can't say you got distracted. It's only if you show me on your calendar I wanted to do X and I did Y. Can we even start having this conversation about getting distracted? And most people, they have lots of white space in their day, right? They use this terrible technique called the to-do list mm -hmm. to tell them what to do, which is one of the worst things you can do yeah. for your personal productivity if you do it incorrectly because you're just letting your life be run by your to-do list. We could talk more about why to-do lists are so terrible a little later if you'd like. But you have to be able to tell me this is traction, whatever that might be. Could be playing a video game. It could be watching Netflix. I don't care. But whatever that thing is that you put on your calendar, that becomes traction. Everything else is a distraction. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I, and I definitely want to get to the to-do list and go down that rabbit hole a little bit. If we go back to kind of how you made this change in your life, mm -hmm. how the challenge that I kind of always kind of talk about here is we want to make a change. And no matter what it is, I want to go to the gym, I want to get in shape, I want to eat better, I want to, again, do this project. But the commitment mm -hmm. to the change and actually reprioritizing our life so that we can accomplish it is very hard to do. So I'm kind of curious, how did you take the steps to make this shift in your life? So you could write the book. You could do these things to put yourself in a better spot. Yeah. 
So for me, it was a very long road, right? Like I said, five years to write this book because I didn't have the book, right? I was looking for it and I read everybody else's book on the topic and I was hoping to find the answer. I didn't set out to write a book. I set out to cure my problem of distraction. And uh, I read all these other books on the topic and they basically all said the same thing. Put away your technology, right? Uh, use willpower, right? Just, just stop it. Right. And none of that stuff works, right? Like banning your technology is silly because, uh, you know, if you think it's the, your phone that's causing you distraction, you're absolutely 100% incorrect because distraction has been with us for at least the past 2,500 years. That's when Plato, the philosopher, described akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. And so people have been struggling with distraction for 2,500 years. It can't be the internet's fault. It can't be social media's fault. It can't be email's fault. There's something going on in our brains. And so what I wanted to do is when I when I write a book, you know, I always write books for myself, for problems that I myself have. And it's only when I read everybody else's book and I don't find an answer that suits me, right? Like these professors with tenure jobs who tell us all stop using social media and email. Well, thanks. That's great for you. You've got tenure. Most people don't have tenure, right? We'll get fired if we stop checking our phones. So that's not very useful advice, is it now? So what we need is a way to use these, these technologies in a way that serves us rather than hurts us. And so what I did was start with first principles and really ask, our, ask myself, what is distraction? Like, what is it really? And um, once I, I came, I uncovered this definition and figured out what I was never taught, that the opposite of distraction is traction. Uh, then I started putting together this model uh, that I call the indistractable model which boils down decades and decades of not my research, right? Hundreds of peer-reviewed studies. Uh, there's 30 pages of citations in the book. I, I don't like these self-help books that basically say, hey, here's what works for me. It's going to work for you. That's nice, but that's not good enough. I want to see the studies, right? Show me the research. And so I really want to plow through academic research that turns out most people don't take the time to read. And if you do read it, you actually, and this is what this is why I have a job, right? I can yeah. take uh, uh, academic speak and turn it into practical advice. Yeah. And so what I did was I, I I learned that a lot of the conventional advice just isn't true. It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of research that shows why it doesn't work. Like, for example, the to-do list, why the to-do list can be actively harmful for your productivity and why there are much better techniques out there. So it wasn't until I, I could I could boil down what I thought were the most fundamental elements to becoming indistractable, starting with traction, distraction, and then the two triggers, internal triggers and external triggers. And now that you have those four points on your compass, you can work through these four points and just adopt one thing. If you can just adopt one simple tactic from these four strategies, you will be well on your way to becoming indistractable because you will truly understand what is distraction. So step number one, is master the internal triggers. If you don't master your internal triggers, what are internal triggers? They're uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. And they lead to 90% of our distractions. We know this in time studies, that people who, when we get distracted, all of us, we get distracted 90% of the time, not because of a ping, ding, or ring, not because of something outside of us, but because of an internal sensation, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, stress, uncertainty. So first and foremost, the step you have to take and understand understand what to do is how will you deal with those internal triggers in a way that leads you towards traction rather than distraction. So that's step number one, master internal triggers or they will become your master. Step number two is make time for traction, right? As I said earlier, if, if uh, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. And if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. So you have to base your calendar on your values. I call this turning your values into time, turning your values into time. Because if you want to know what somebody's values really are, don't listen to what they say. They don't know themselves, right? The only way to know someone's real values are to look at how they spend their money and how to spend their time. They can talk a good game. We, I can talk a good game, but unless I turn it into time and money, those aren't really my values. So- that's what you have to do. You have to turn your values into time. And we can talk about how to do that in more depth. Third is hacking back the external triggers. This is kind of the most nuts and bolts section of, of my work. You know, it's how do we hack back our phones? How do we hack back our computers? It turns out it's really easy. We think these technologies are so powerful that they're stealing our focus. That's a bunch of crap. It's not true. They're not stealing our focus. We're giving it away. Okay. And so all we have to do is do some simple changes to our devices. It'll take you five minutes to make your phone an indistractable phone. So I show you exactly how to do that. What's more important actually turns out to be a much greater time sink are things like meetings. 
right? How many of us sit in stupid meetings that didn't need to be called that are nothing but time wasters? What do we do about that? Huge distraction. Email, huge potential distraction. So I show you step-by-step -step in Indistractable what to do about each one of those external triggers. And then finally, preventing distraction with pacts. A pact is a pre-commitment. So this becomes the firewall, if you will, against distraction. So in short, the model is these four steps, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers and prevent distraction with packs. And of course we can, I'm happy to, you know, I'm not one of these authors that doesn't like to tell you the good stuff and saves it in the book. No, no, I'll give you everything you need to know. Uh, there's, there's more than we have time to cover, of course, yeah. but wh whatever interests you, we can, we can dive into. Well, I, I, I am interested in, in kind of that, especially with the to-do list and, and how things, you know, as you were mentioning that, it kind of the Eisenhower matrix jumped into my head of like, you know, we yeah. always do that not important, urgent, you know, or not important, um, not urgent, but those type of quadrants we always hit, but yet we neglect what the most important is, right? Is the important, not urgent. So that's kind of, when you talked about like email flying in and those type of things, how do you recommend folks like structure their day? Is that, I'm, I'm assuming, are, are, are you an advocate of planning the day before for the day ahead or week ahead? How, how do you structure it? Yeah, yeah. So this is where time boxing comes in. And maybe it's a good opportunity to talk about why to-do lists suck. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you a few reasons why <laughs> the the conventional advice on time management, uh, the to-do list, tends to not work. One, one terrible piece of advice you hear a lot these days is if anything takes you less than two minutes, just do it. And maybe that used to work, but here's the problem. Every email takes less than two minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you do a one two-minute email and another two-minute email, another two-minute email, guess what? You're going to blow hours of time and you'll never get to the thing that actually really does matter in your day. I guarantee you most people's jobs, some people's jobs maybe, most people's jobs are not answering emails all day. And yet that's what way too many people do. They're spending their entire day doing what's called reactive work. Now, reactive work, it's going to play some part of your day, right? Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to taps on the shoulder from your colleagues. Some of your day is going to be spent doing reactive work. The problem is people don't make time for what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, thinking, for God's sakes, requires you to work without distraction. Most people do not plan that time. And if you do not plan that time, somebody's going to plan it for you. So some part of your day must be reserved for reflective work, or you're going to find yourself running real fast in the wrong direction. So the failing of to-do lists is that to-do lists have no constraints. No constraints. You can add all the tasks you want to your to-do list. But if you don't put those tasks in your calendar... There's no constraint to tell you when it's too much. So here's what happens. You get home from work like I used to, day after day, and you look at your to-do list and you say, man, I've been running around like crazy. I've been working so hard. And here's all this stuff I still didn't accomplish, all this stuff I still didn't do, these promises that I made to myself that I didn't keep, loser. Yeah. So what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your self-image? If day after day, week after month, uh, week after week, month after month, year after year, you have, you're reinforcing this self-image of someone who doesn't keep promises to themselves. Yeah. And so this is where you hear people saying stuff like, oh, I'm bad at time management or, uh, you know, I, I have a short attention span or whatever the case might be. You hear all these myths that people are making up for themselves, which of course uh, are, are, are self-fulfilling prophecies. If you believe you're incapable, guess what? You are because <laughs> yeah. you won't even try. So the to-do list has this fundamental flaw that it does not have constraints, whereas a time box schedule forces you to make trade-offs. It forces you to say, wait, based on my values, what is more important to me? Because I only have 24 hours in a day. And so what kills me is that people are so stingy with their money, right? People will clip coupons. They'll split checks when they take their friends out to lunch. They're so stingy with money. But when it comes to time, the only non-renewable resource, right? You can always make more money. You can always make more money. You can't make more time. And yet we give our time away Anybody who wants it. Oh, there's some stupid crap happening in the news. Okay, here you go. There's some game that I got to watch. Oh, sure. Are you, uh, there's a project that's urgent, but I'm, that's not urgent, but I'm going to think it's urgent. Okay, whatever. Right. right? We just give it away. That's ridiculous because we can't make more time. We can always make more money. So a time box calendar forces you to ask yourself, given the time I have, which is the same amount of time that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have, they also have the same hours in the day. How will I spend my time according to my values? Again, turning your values into time. So I give people these three life domains of you, your relationships, and finally your work. And so through this model that we walk through in the book, 
you make yourself a weekly calendar and you time box that calendar. And it sounds like a lot of work. And sometimes I get people resisting and saying, oh, but I need to be spontaneous or I'm in the service business. And what if somebody calls me or what if my kids, I have heard telling you, Brian, every freaking excuse people can come up with. I've never been stumped. I've never met somebody that can't time box, right? You don't have to time box exactly what you're going to do. You're going to time box what you will not be doing. Okay. Very important point. Let me give you an example. So uh, for example, when I exercise, I have time for physical fitness. Why? Because personal health is one of my values, right? That's something that's important to me. So I have that time. Now I might go for a swim. I might go for a walk. I might go to the gym. I don't know, but I've got that time apportioned out. Why? So that it tells me what I will not be doing. I will not be watching Netflix. I will not be checking email. I will not be doing work. I need to fulfill my value of physical fitness. Time with my daughter, right? I, we have this time planned every week where we go spend time together. We call it planned spontaneity. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know that I will not be doing anything else but being with someone I love very much. So we've got to take that time ahead of time. And I'm telling you, it takes me maybe 10 minutes a week. I do it every Sunday night at 8 p.m. I plan that week ahead. I make adjustments based on the week that's just passed. And it becomes such an integral part of your life it's improved my work output. It's improved my health, my mental well-being. Uh, there, there's no asset of my, a facet of my life that has not improved since I've started adopting these techniques. When you think of, so for time boxing, if we went a little deeper, would you encourage mm -hmm. folks, let, let's just take today as the example. We'll just use that. However, whenever someone's listening and it's like, okay, between nine and a period of time, so let's say nine and 10 or nine and 11 or whatever it is, are you putting a, so let's use writing as the example. Are you going to put on there, hey, I'm I'm going to write for these two hours or this hour. That's all I'm going to do for this time. It's similar to physical fitness, but like, would right. you put a high value task in there as well, considering like the work? That's how you would basically just block the exactly for that. Right. It'd be, I have time for writing. I have time for email. I have time for social media, right? People yeah. like to vilif vilify social media and Netflix and video games. No, there's nothing wrong with these things. We need to stop moralizing and medicalizing. If you want to play video games, go play video games. Like yeah. why is watching football on TV somehow morally superior to playing video games? Play video games if you want, yeah. but put it on your calendar, right? That's what's so amazing about this technique is when you plan ahead for this, right? When, if there's something you love to do that you find you do too much that distracts you, it's amazing when you put it on your calendar, when you actually plan time for it, no matter what that thing is, now you suddenly gain control over it and it doesn't control you. You're not constantly thinking about it all day of, oh, when, when, can, I, uh, when can I check social media or, or when can I go play a video game or when can I check email? If it's on your calendar, now your brain doesn't have to constantly remind you about when can we do it, when can we do it? It's coming, it's on the schedule. And what you're gonna do if it's not enough time, so let's say time for email. I, I meet a lot of executives who are constantly chained to their email and they, they, they feel like they constantly have to be available and of course, this just perpetuates this terrible cycle of responsiveness, where if, if you're the boss and you're constantly replying to every email within 30 seconds, your whole company is going to start doing that because they all, you know, culture is like water. It flows downhill. Mm -hmm. So your entire company is looking at you to see what your response time is, and they're going to match you accordingly. And that is not always good. It sounds like a good thing. I think it's actually more times than not a terrible thing yeah. because you cannot do good work. Your people cannot do good work if they can't freaking think. Where's the time to think? Right. So you want to set that pace, pace by saying, hey, you know what? I check email three times a day, right? And here are the hours. And that's when you're going to get a response. And you know what? People will wait. It's okay. They don't need to reply to every 30 seconds. And so there's various techniques. For example, you asked about email. Uh, the secret to email is it turns out that where we waste time on email is not the checking of email. It's not even the replying of email. It's the rechecking of email. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You open up your email, you take a look, you open an email. Okay, you read it, you put it away. You read the next email. Okay, uh, a little while later, yeah, what was that email again? Okay, let me check it. Oh yeah, they, they need that by that time. Okay, so that's where the, the, the waste of time comes in. Instead, the rule is you only touch email a maximum of two times. The first time you touch that email, you need to ask yourself this crucial question, which is, when does it need a reply? When does it need a reply? And that answer can either be never, in which case delete it right away. It can be today. If it's something truly urgent, it has to be replied to today, or it could be something that needs a reply within a week's time. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to do is you're going to create labels. 
Okay, every email service provider lets you create labels and you're gonna label it either today or this week. Now, more or less, what we find is about 80% of your emails for most professionals can be answered within a week's time. Only about 20% of your emails need to reply today. Most people don't do this, right? Most people, when an email comes in, they will reply to the easiest to reply email first, right? The yes, no, maybe, whatever. They reply real quick because it's easy to get it out of your inbox and on, into somebody else's inbox. But of course, think about it logically. If you want to get fewer emails, you have to send fewer emails in a given period of time. Right. If not, you're going to play email ping pong, right? Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Instead, by saying, wait a minute, when does this actually need a reply? Okay. And then for the ones that need to reply today, you have time in your time box calendar to reply today. The other ones, the 80% the, the that require a reply sometime this week, here's where the magic happens. Okay. Here's where I'm magically going to make your emails disappear. When you take those 80% of emails and you answer them by when they need a reply. So in my schedule, I have um, a Monday, a big block of time called Monday messages, mm -hmm. which is where I have that time for those weekly messages. The ones that could wait for a while, it's not urgent. They can receive a reply a little bit later. So within a week's time. So on my Monday messages time, it's three hour block. When I have that time, that's when I go back through them. And here's, here's the amazing thing. You will find that about 50% of those emails that you set aside and said, okay, I can reply sometime within this week, 50% of those emails will magically not need replies. Mm -hmm. Why? People will solve their own problems. That problem that was so urgent on Monday turns out that next week is not that urgent anymore. It's been crushed under the weight of some other priority, right? People figure things out. If it doesn't need a reply, by you sticking your nose in and constantly playing this ping pong game, you're wasting more time than you could ever imagine. So by just letting the emails simmer, the ones that aren't truly urgent, 50% of them go away, okay? So just that technique, and this is just one of hundreds of techniques I talk about in the book, this is a, a practice that really helps you get control of those external triggers so that you can finally hack back. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I haven't done that with my email. I've, I've tried to, but um, I definitely get... Uh... I definitely have them piling up and then I feel like, yeah, I have to kind of sift through at various times. One, one of the yeah. things I guess I struggle with, but I've tried to get more control over because I get a lot of newsletters, you know, I'm trying to learn mm -hmm. and read and whatever. So that goes back to like, you mentioned the thinking when you said that it kind of, that's what sparked in my head was like, I try to have time in the morning of like my thinking. But part of that is reading yeah. newsletters, coming up with ideas, those type of things, but they get filtered in at various times. And sometimes I feel like I have this stack of them in there. So if you're right. not, if do you have time on your schedule to check those emails, the newsletters? Of course not. No. <laughs> okay. No, so I don't. Big mistake. You yes. got to make that time. Yeah. And here's the, here's the most important thing. Yeah. That time you have to stick with. Okay. So you, you probably enjoy reading newsletters. Most people do. Mm -hmm. I have a newsletter. I love it when people read them, yeah. but I will tell you, you can't let them control your life. What most people do, they start their day and they say, okay, I got to catch up on all the newsletters. Let me, let me plow through these real quick. Mm -hmm. That's easy. It's fun right? They're made to be entertaining. That is not work. That is consumption, not creation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hear me loud and clear. That is consumption, not creation. Your job on this earth is to create. You need to make, not be a consumer, but be a creator. Now, that being said, there's nothing wrong with consuming. Okay. It's fine. The problem is if it crowds out creation, you are destroying your own values. You are not living up to your true potential. So what I want you to do is to ask yourself, how much time would the person I want to become spend on this task? Okay, that is the very definition of values. Values are defined as attributes to the person you want to become. I'll say it again. Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So if you ask yourself, how much time would the person I want to become spend reading newsletters? Again, there's nothing wrong with newsletters. There's nothing wrong with social media. There's nothing wrong with video games. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. If you want to spend your time doing them according to your values, do it. Enjoy it. But ask yourself, how much time would the person I want to become spend doing it? And hold yourself accountable, which means, let's say, Brian says, you know what? The person I want to become spends 30 minutes a day reading newsletters. Great. Read for 30 minutes and delete all the rest that you don't get to that day. Just delete them because you're never going to read them. Why? Because the person Brian wants to become reads newsletters for 30 minutes a day and no more because there's time for newsletters and there's time for creation.
Yeah, I love that. Uh, you just got to put the boxes, I guess, around it or the, the fence around it and say this is and, and I think this goes back to your point, if, if I'm hearing correctly, is the control. You're in control when you do that versus the newsletters controlling you, the emails flying in controlling you, right? That's right. Right. And, and it's all four take things together because, again, it, we skipped step one. Step one is the most important, the mastering internal triggers. The first question to ask yourself is why am I getting distracted in the first place? Right. Like if you're reading newsletters or Slack channels or pornography or YouTube videos or video games or email or work or whatever yeah. is taking you off track, if you don't understand the deeper reason why, if you don't understand the discomfort that you are looking to escape, this is a really important point, right? If we want to understand why we get distracted, we have to understand why we do anything and everything, right? What is the seat of human motivation? Most people say, okay, motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? You motivate yourself and others through the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, right? Carrots and sticks. Not true. Not true. Turns out, neurologically speaking, there is no such thing as carrots, carrots and sticks. There is only the desire to escape discomfort. So do you remember that scene in The Matrix? You saw The Matrix, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right? Great, great <laughs> movie. So you know that part where Neo walks into the room and there's that kid with a spoon? Yeah. And the spoon starts bending? Mm -hmm. And the kid says, there is no spoon. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm about to have that moment for you. Okay. Okay. Turns out the carrot is the stick. The carrot is the stick. Meaning even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, lusting, desire, craving, hunger, the pursuit of pleasurable sensations is itself psychologically destabilizing. So the only thing that drives human behavior is the desire to escape discomfort, which therefore must mean time management is pain management. Money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Everything is pain management. This is not a new concept, right? This is the core of, of Buddhism. This is the core of Stoic philosophy. It's all about your ability to control discomfort. So if we start with all the life hacks and the tips and the tricks and the apps, we don't get to the core of the problem, which is our inability to control our impulsivity, which is spurred always by a desire to escape discomfort. So step number one is to know what you will do when boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, stress, uncertainty, what will you do when you feel those sensations? And what I learned in my, in my research is that high performers, high performers, people who are naturally indistractable, mm -hmm. and these are people in every field from the arts to sports to business to whatever, these people feel the same internal triggers that the rest of us do. They also get bored and anxious and lonely and stressed and uncertain. The difference is high performers use that discomfort as rocket fuel to propel them towards traction. Whereas what distractible people do is as soon as they feel discomfort, they're out with distraction. They try and escape that sensation. But the fact of the matter is whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you are always going to find distraction somewhere or another unless you understand what is that underlying emotional state that you are trying to escape. Wow, that's powerful right there. I got, I'm going to have to listen to this back a couple of times and, and dissect that because that makes a lot of sense, but you don't think you're doing it, I guess, in the moment, right? Exactly. But I, hey, look, I, I, we are cut from the same cloth. I used to read so many newsletters yeah. thinking, okay, I, I got to stay up to date on my industry, right? I got to know what's going on. Right. I go, well, I got, I got to be conversant in, in, in what's happening in the world. I don't want to be a dummy and not know what's happening. But when I really analyzed it, when I really thought about it, okay, 30 minutes, sure. An hour, hour and a half, two hours, right? Between the work I really need to do, I would drift off and check this and read that. If I'm honest with you and myself, I was doing it to escape discomfort. I didn't want to do the work. Yeah. I didn't want to do the hard stuff. Yeah. Right. I didn't want to make those sales calls. I didn't want to work on that presentation. I didn't want to work the hard, I do the hard stuff I know I had to do. And so it's not until you realize that and face it head on and say, okay, you know what? This is the reason. It's only then that you can start putting in tactics to deal with that discomfort. Because if you don't do that, none of the other techniques will work. Yeah. Well, you're right. Cause I think part of it is to trick yourself. So I like to, you know, pride myself, I guess, having a really, uh, solid and definitely a bedtime routine to get in bed and make sure I fall asleep and get my time, but also kind of the, the morning routine. But to your point, what I've noticed is like, oh, I'll do my yoga in the morning and then I'll go sit and have some coffee, read some of the newsletters, start kind of thinking. 
But yeah, that drags on where it's supposed to be 20, 30 minutes, but sometimes it gets a little longer than that. And and I, and then sometimes I jump on social media and I think to your point, it's like, yeah, I'm maybe trying to avoid kind of getting into that hard work and just getting it started, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's where these four techniques come into concert. I will tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is habits. <laughs> and this is kind of going against the grain because I think we have this myth and I'm all for habits, right? My first book was all about how to build habit forming products. I understand habits very, very well. And there's a time and a place for habits. The problem is that when people say they want to turn something into a habit or flow, flow is a similar idea, right? You've probably heard about flow, Chick Semihai's idea of, you know, these, these magical states where, you know, time goes by so quickly and things are effortless. And that's kind of what people want from flow and from habits. It's the same thing. They don't want to do the task. They want to have done the task, right? right. Uh, oh, I really want to get into a writing habit, but I hate writing. Oh, I really want to get into an exercise habit, but exercise sucks. Oh, meditation. I really want to start meditating. I need an ex I need a meditation habit, Med but I hate meditating. Right. <laughs> I don't have the patience for it. Right. And so what, what people think is a habit turns out will never be a habit. Right. This is this is actually pretty important because a habit is defined as behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Beats me how you meditate with little or no conscious thought. Isn't the point of meditation to observe your thoughts? If you're meditating with little or no conscious thought, you're asleep. You're doing it wrong. How do you write? I've been a professional author for over a decade. Somebody please tell me how to get into a writing habit. How do I write with little or no conscious thought? I don't know. I have to think about what I'm going to write about or else it's not a habit. Right. <laughs> These things aren't habits. They are routines. So you say, oh, what's the big deal? Tomato, tomato, right? Routine, habit. What's the difference? The difference is when we tell people that there's this magical state that you can get in where you can effortlessly do work, you can effortlessly get into flow, you can effortlessly turn everything into a habit, they try and they fail because some behaviors will never become a habit. Some behaviors can if it's done with little or no conscious thought. Sure. You can drive a car without, with very little conscious thought, right? That's why we can listen to a radio or, or have a conversation while we're driving. That behavior becomes habitual. We can do other things while we're doing that because we're basically driving on autopilot with little or no conscious thought, right? Some behaviors can become habits, even if they start out as rather complex. But some behaviors will never become habits. They will stay routine. So what happens is after 30 days, 60 days, some magic number of days, people think it's 44 days. It's not, but anyway, people look at themselves and they say, wait a minute. Uh, this still sucks, <laughs> right? Like, right. I still don't like doing this task. It's not effortless. It hasn't become a habit. And they don't blame the technique. They blame themselves. And there's nothing wrong with them. It's so that something's wrong with the silly technique. So as opposed to trying to figure out how do I escape the discomfort of the task, right? How do we use the Mary Poppins method of putting a spoonful of sugar on stuff? I advise the exact opposite. We need to get comfortable with discomfort, right? That's what high performers do. High performers don't try and escape the pain. They leverage the pain. They use it as rocket fuel. And so that's what we have to learn to do. So what if, if we're kind of thinking about that, if we keep it top of mind, let's use the fitness analogy. That's always an easy one. So let's say it's someone's it's like, God, I don't like working out, but I know I need to get in better shape. I got to eat healthier. Like what's the first step for them to think differently about that? If they're trying to form a habit, let's say, and that's not, maybe not the best way. Like how do they think about that differently? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say for most exercise, unless you can do with little or no conscious thought, which some exercise you probably can, for example, taking a walk around the block, if you're reasonably physically fit, you can probably do with little or no conscious thought. So maybe that you could turn into a habit, but for most people, it's going to be your routine. Why? Because unfortunately it's going to require effort. It's not something done with little or no conscious thought. It requires effort. I, if I go to the gym and I'm lifting weights with little or no conscious thought, I'm not getting stronger, right? I'm wasting time. Right. You have to sweat. You have to hurt. You have to push yourself if you want to get more fit, mm -hmm. right? Dieting sucks. It's not fun. It's never going to become a habit. Right. <laughs> it's hard work. Uh, so how do you get comfortable with that? Well, first and foremost is starting with the internal triggers, is understanding that discomfort and reimagining the internal triggers. So there's lots of different, there's a dozen different techniques that you can use. Uh, one technique that I use almost every single day is called the 10 minute rule. Have you heard about the 10 minute rule? I have. Yeah. That's uh, I, I, oh, I, I think I heard that from you uh, originally. But oh, yeah, did you hear it from yeah, me? Okay. Yeah. So that, should I go over it again or yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. Jump into it, please. Sure. So the 10 minute rule I use almost every single day. The idea here is that when you are potentially distracted, okay. So whether you, when you find yourself, you say you want to do one thing and then you find yourself doing something else. You say you're going to exercise 
and you still haven't left the house. You, uh, you, you say you're on a diet, but boy, that chocolate cake is super tempting right now. The idea is that you can give into that temptation. You can do the thing that you're, that you're telling yourself not to do. You can do it, but not right now. Not right now. You can do it in 10 minutes. You can eat that chocolate cake. You can smoke that cigarette. You can check email, whatever the case might be, in 10 minutes. Not for 10 minutes, by the way. Make sure this is very clear. You do it in 10 minutes. Now, why is this so important? Number one, it gives you a greater sense of autonomy and agency. We know that there's this psychological phenomenon called reactance. And reactance is when we tell ourselves not to do something, our natural inclination is to rebel, right? Don't tell me what to do. So by giving yourself the power to say, look, I can give into that temptation. I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want, right? You disarm that reactance, okay? That's that's first. The the, the second thing that you're doing is that you're building that agency to, to prove to yourself, wait a minute, you know, 10 minutes, no big deal. By the way, if 10 minutes seems too long, try five minutes, okay? But what you're going to do is the five-minute rule becomes the six-minute rule, becomes the seven-minute rule, becomes the eight-minute rule, and you're proving to yourself, wait a minute, I, I can wait, right? I can go a little bit longer without without giving to that temptation. And so you're proving to yourself that self-agency and efficacy. What you're also doing in those uh, 10 minutes for this 10-minute rule, you are not necessarily getting back to the task at hand. You can, but you've got two possible options. You can get back to the task at hand, whether it's the writing or the exercise or whatever the case might be, the thing that you said you were going to do as opposed to getting distracted from. Or you can surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these uncomfortable sensations, they are never permanent. They crest and then they subside. That's not how it feels like in the moment, right? In the moment, it feels like we're always going to be angry. We're always going to be hungry. We're always going to be uh, sad or lonely or stressed, whatever the case might be. But of course, that's never how it is, right? These sensations crest and they subside. So your job is to surf that urge like a surfer on a surfboard. And one technique is to repeat a mantra. So for example, when I am writing, okay? And all I want to do is go check email or a newsletter or do something else other than writing. When I use this 10-minute rule and I say, okay, take a deep breath. And for me, I have a mantra. I say, this is what it feels like to get better. This is what it feels like to get better. And just repeating that mantra a few times until I'm ready to get back to the task at hand, knowing that, hey, you know what? When that clock runs out, it's okay. I can go check email after that clock runs out. It's amazing how even when the clock runs out, I don't feel like it, right? I'm, I'm back working and now i'm excited about my work now it's taken over now the routine is not so difficult to get started so that's one technique that we can use you know i use it almost every single day a 10 minute rule uh to to help us reimagine that internal trigger yeah and i've been using that too i love it It just because i never went before i heard it from me i was like yeah i get distracted i just pull my phone but then using that it's kind of like hold on keep it at arm's length you got this. And yeah. I like the the mantra there. And that's something um, I think to consider as well. And and this might be a, a sidestep, but maybe to that point, since it seems so simple, I, I did want to ask you, you know, I have a 11 year old. It's funny saying that because he would just turned 11. I'm like, God, he's getting old. Um, <laughs> is how you work with your kids or just other people yeah. to help them to kind of coach to work with kids so that they can kind of learn techniques that so they don't get more distracted as they get older and they get out on their own. Yeah, I think this is the, if you're a parent, then this is the most important chapter of the book is how to raise indistractable kids. Because if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years, right? Apple announced uh, their virtual reality headset. Uh, We've got augmented reality. We've got God knows what else is going to happen in actual reality. There's a lot of distractions out there and the world will become a more distracting place. And we have to teach our kids how to become indistractable because there's really going to be a bifurcation out there. Like the, the critical skill of the century. It's not going to be who has the most information. It's not going to be who's the most educated. It's who can stay focused. It's who can do what they say they're going to do. It's who can be indistractable. That's going to be the skill of the century. All the other skills you can learn, but you can't learn anything if you can't focus. So this is the most important skill to teach our children. So how do we do that? The first uncomfortable truth is that in order to be to, to raise indistractable kids or to be an indistractable boss, you have to be indistractable yourself, okay? So whether it's children or your employees or your colleagues, you have to lead by example. I can't tell you how many parents I see who tell me, oh, my kid's always on Fortnite. He's always playing video games. And then meanwhile, while they're telling me this, they're on their phones checking email. Can't do that because kids are born with hypocrisy detection devices. You can't see. They have these little invisible antennae and they're constantly scanning around to see where you screw up. 
So we have to be indistractable ourselves as parents. And it's okay to tell our children that we're struggling. That's perfectly fine. Like a lot of parents uh, don't want to show their kids they're vulnerable. But I advise the opposite. It actually is very helpful to tell your kids, look, these products are designed uh, to get you hooked. I know. I wrote the book, Hooked, yeah, right? right. <laughs> you know, all their tactics. And they're good, but they're not that good. We can be more powerful than these technologies. So if you can do this with your kid and say, look, I struggle with this as well. You help me, I'll help you, right? Let's do this together. And then we follow these four strategies, the same exact strategies that I laid out earlier, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. Adults can use it as well as children. I mean, I, I you know, I have a 15-year-old. He's about to turn 15. And uh, yeah, like being a teenager is tough these days. There's a lot of products out there that are designed to get them and us hooked. Uh, and it's really going to be us. Like these companies are not going to do it for us, right? Like we, we have to take charge for ourselves. And and thankfully, it's not that hard, right? The book is not that long. And the, the chapter on raising indistractable kids is even shorter. Now, the one thing that is different um, like basically, you know, uh, making time for traction, you know, suggesting that you sit down with your kid and build a schedule together mm -hmm. when they have time for the things they love. Like one of the biggest mistakes parents make is they say like, I want my kid to go from, you know, using, uh, social media or playing Fortnite to not using it. And that's a big, big mistake. Or I'll let them use it after they do all their other chores. That's a big mistake. Time box it. Time box it just yeah. like everything else, right? Time for homework, time to eat dinner with the family, time to play, time to go outside and time for tech. That's fine. We don't want to raise kids that are scared of technology because their jobs are going to depend on them using technology. So we want them to be comfortable with these tools. So scheduling that time, that's making time for traction, hacking back external triggers. One of the biggest mistakes parents make is that they let these devices into kids' bedrooms, right? We need to remove all those external triggers. That is not only computers and cell phones, televisions, radios, anything that beeps or boops should not be in a child's bedroom because anything that interrupts sleep has no place in the bedroom, not only for kids, for adults, right? Sleep is far too important to let televisions in the bedroom. There's the, the bedroom is for sleep and sex. That's it <laughs> for adults. Kids, it's just for sleep. Uh, and then finally, preventing distraction with packs, teaching kids how to use technology to prevent distraction from technology. My daughter and I both use this wonderful app called Forest that helps us use a pact, a pre-commitment that keeps technology out when we we decide to do a certain task. So those three steps are exactly the same. The first step around mastering internal triggers, this is a longer discussion. I'm not sure if we have time for it. Maybe we'll do it on a follow-up episode. This is where it's so important to understand why kids are getting distracted in the first place. So for adults, we can do some introspection. We can ask ourselves, what are we trying to escape from? And you know, there's a formula to do this. For children, I think it's really imperative that we understand what are kids escaping from? And, and the, the short story is, uh, there's two psychologists by the name of Desi and Ryan who decades ago came up with what's called the needs displacement hypothesis, which simply says, when you are not receiving what you need in one area of the, your life, you're going to get it in another area. And so they have these three, it's called self-determination theory. Uh, I, I, I dub these the, uh, the, the psychological nutrients, right? Just like we have physical uh, nutrients for our body, the macronutrients of protein, fat, and carbohydrates. We also have psychological nutrients of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And what we see is that children are deficient more than ever in these three psychological nutrients. And because they don't get them offline, they're looking for them online. And that is the true source of why kids are looking for escape with their technologies. These are symptoms of a sickness. They are not the sickness themselves. They don't cause the sickness. They are symptoms of the sickness. The fact that kids are going online to excess is, is caused by these deficiencies in their psychological nutrients. Yeah, that's a lot of good stuff that we probably could do a whole episode just on parenting and, and kids and stuff. So if you're open to that, I would love to, to set that up sure. for sure. Absolutely. Um, for today, anything else? Because this has been a unbelievable. Um, a lot of depth here, a lot of good thoughts for everyone. Anything else you would add questions, maybe a, maybe a challenge to someone that's trying to be indistractable um, or get that in their life? Anything you'd kind of end the uh, conversation on? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it, it's very, I think uh, most people are kind of terrified with these techniques. <laughs> and if you're feeling that, yeah. right, if you're feeling like, wow, this guy's got some good ideas, but that could not work for me, uh, everybody thinks that. Right. Everybody comes up with with uh, a million excuses. I did, too, when I started with this research. And what you need to realize is that that is fear talking. That is the fear that, wait a minute, if I actually put these practices uh, into good use, that I would actually have to do the stuff that I don't really feel like doing. Mm -hmm. Eh, that sucks. 
But what are you waiting for? Right? You know you're capable of these things, right? I always ask people when people say, I, I just can't, right? My life is too busy. I can't make a schedule. I can't do what you've advised the book. It doesn't work. It won't work for me. And I say, well, let me ask you something. If I said, let's take exercise, right? If I said, hey, um, how much do you want to exercise? Oh, I want to exercise three times a week. Fantastic. For how long? Uh, let's say an hour. But I just can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. And then I say, well, let's, let's, let's do a little experiment here. If I said, okay, next week, if you don't work out three days a week, you have to pay me $25,000. You owe me $25,000. Would you work out three days a week? Of course I would. No doubt about it. Okay, so we finally figured out you can. All right, now we're just negotiating a price. So remembering this, right? When we tell ourselves we can't, we can't, we can't for one reason or another. And I'm, again, I've heard every excuse in the book. I have an answer to all of the excuses. Yeah. But fundamentally, the answer is, do you want this? Because you can. You absolutely can. There are no excuses out there that you know prevent the vast majority of people short of, you know, I'll put a little asterisk here, some kind of medical diagnosis. Okay, that maybe that's a different conversation. But short of that, the vast majority of people can. They just won't. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you don't have to be that kind of person. Your listeners don't have to be those kind of people because there is there's nothing preventing us from this. So the, the mantra I want you to remember is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought, meaning there is no distraction we can't overcome as long as we plan ahead. But if we wait till the last minute, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to our mouth, we're going to eat it. If the cigarette's on our hand, we're going to smoke it. If we sleep next to our cell phones every night, of course, it's going to be the first thing we reach for in the morning before we say hello to our loved ones, right? So if you wait to the last minute, they will get you. It's too late. You have to plan ahead. And if you plan ahead, if you take steps today, prevent distraction tomorrow, there's no distraction you can't overcome. Near that's a. I think it's a great maybe a point to end on because that's you're you're absolutely right on that. Um, because yeah, at the end of the day, it seems like, and because I'm just thinking as you're saying that all these things jump in my head of like how you put yourself in the way of that, and you stumble unless if you planned before you're going to have a lot better chance at success. So that's a great point. Um, that's right. That's right. All right. So you have the book indistractable. Um, obviously you have your newsletter, uh, anything else, any other way are you, are you, are you spending some time on social? Where, where's your, where's your watering hole that you like to spend? Yeah, on? I'm, I'm all over social LinkedIn is kind of my uh, platform of choice. Cause I tend to, to help a business audience, but, uh, the best place to find more about me and my work is at near and far.com near spelled N I R and far not N I R is my, how you spell my first name. And uh, I want to mention that uh, if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually an 80-page workbook everyone could get, complimentary. Uh, we couldn't fit it into the final edition of the book. It was too long. So there's an 80-page workbook completely free at indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Awesome. And we'll link that all up in the uh, the show notes. So, Nir, thank you so much. It was fun having you back on and uh, chatting through this. Thanks so much, Brian. Great to see you again. Hey everyone, and just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.